0: go ahead and get started here in a second. Um, I'll just give everybody a second to find your seats and uh, mention that as usual, there are handouts in the background, or in in the background, in the back, um, uh, if you haven't had a chance to pick one up yet. So I'll, again, let everybody find their seats and then I'll pray for us and we'll get started here in a second. Let me go ahead and say in the meantime, sort of talk about where we're at in the class. Uh, So far, in the previous weeks, we've talked about what it means to be made in the image of God in the first place, in Genesis. And then we began to talk about what happens to the image of God in the fall, in Genesis 3, and the consequences of that. Uh, Last week, we sort of went into further consequences of... um, the fall, looking at the subject of idolatry and, um, and idolatry as related to the image of God. And so this week, uh, you could say that in Genesis 3, we saw, part of what we saw was uh, our desperate need for a Redeemer. And in this week, we actually will talk about our Redeemer. Um, this week, we'll begin talking about Jesus Christ as the image of God. Uh, so that's where we're at in the class at this point. Let me Go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for one another and the chance that we have to gather and study your word together and learn from it. We ask that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit as we uh, think about your word together, and in particular, as we think about your Son, Jesus Christ, and um, part of some of the facets, anyway, of who he is and how extraordinary he um, He is, how extraordinary you are. And we ask that as we contemplate these things, that you would draw us to worship you, uh, to be in awe of you, and to worship you all the more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Okay, so uh, last week I noted that after Genesis 9, we don't see the phrase image of God again until the New Testament. And when that phrase reappears in the Bible, it's actually referring specifically to Jesus Christ. So 2 Corinthians 4.4 is actually the first time after Genesis 9.6 that we see the exact phrase image of God again in the Bible. And so there are a couple passages that really come into play here. The two primary passages we'll be looking at today are 2 Corinthians 4, four through six, and then uh, a little bit later, uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. These are the two primary passages that talk about Jesus being the image of God in the New Testament. Um, and one of the primary questions then that I want to explore in today's lesson is, first of all, in what way or ways is Jesus the image of God? Uh, what what is, what is the Bible talking about when it calls Jesus the image of God? And then secondly, how does that relate to the creation of human beings in the image of God in Genesis? So, um, so maybe we can just start there and um, what I'd like to do is use Mentimeter again, as I did um, one week past, at least. Um, and um, I would invite you all to uh, scan the QR code that's on your handout, and I think we we'll also—it's also on the screen. Um, and just uh, we'll start with uh, by I'll start by asking all of you in a word or a phrase, um, what do you think? In what way or ways is Jesus the image of God? What does this mean? Um, That Jesus is the image of God. So, um, as you once you scan the QR code and start writing in answers, um, hopefully we can get that up on the screen. All right, there we go. Okay, so human, son, divine. like god loving uh, holy uh, forgiven sinless um he is god, rationality um not distorted um, nature, perfect kind um, son, same absolute um, god embodied sinless truth um okay it, peaceful? That's a good set of answers, um, a really good set of answers. And uh, some of these are, I, I think, you know, right on target with where we're going. I mean, all of them are are in the realm of where we're going. And um, But I think it's really interesting that three of the first things that came up were um, human, son, divine, like God, um, three or four of the first things that came up. And um, I think we're going to see when we get to the New Testament passages, that all of that is um, very much in the vein of, of where Paul is thinking um, where he, when he calls Jesus the image of God. So uh, why don't we go ahead and turn, then, to 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, and we'll look at the first of these passages where um, Jesus is explicitly called the image of God. Um, okay, so... Uh, 2 Corinthians 4:4 4, 4 through 6, I'll just read the text for us briefly. Um, Paul writes, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, so let me say a couple things about the context, first of all. Um, Paul is in verse 4 when he talks about, um, in their case, when he says in their case, that they're uh, in that verse... Um, In their case, God has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's talking there about um, unbelievers whose hearts or eyes, we could say, are veiled from seeing the truth of the gospel. And that's a reference really to the previous paragraph, um, 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18, where he has kind of expanded on that idea a little bit more. Uh, so he starts off here talking about um, unbelievers who are unable to see the truth of the gospel because their their eyes or their hearts are veiled from uh, being able to see it. As we go further into this passage though, what does it specifically tell us about Jesus as the image of God? Um, one thing that we see here in, the, in these verses is that uh, there is an analogy in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, between the glory of the Lord and the image of God, um, a comparison between those two things. So um, in verse 4, uh, the glory of Christ is um, not just a reflection um, of the glory uh, is not just a reflection of the glory of God. It's actually identical with it. If we really think through these verses, um, when when we read uh, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, um, in verse 4, there's an analogy there um, between uh, Christ's glory and, and being the image of God. Um, if we compare that with 2 Corinthians 3.18, the paragraph above, um, we see that the phrase, um, glory of the Lord, appears there. And um, again, we'll see um, the glory of God in verse six. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In context here, Paul is referring back to when Moses saw the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai. Uh, he talks about that up in Second Corinthians 3, 12 through eighteen. Um, so, and if and so that's. Um, what the reference to the glory of the Lord, which is compared here to the glory of Christ, is, is about, is the glory of God that Moses saw on Exodus. Of course, when, and the thing to realize about that is that when Moses saw uh, the glory of God on Exodus, that was not some uh, reflection of God's glory. That wasn't, um, you know, like a mirror of God's glory or something like that. He was beholding God himself. Um, and although he didn't see him face to face, he only saw his back, it was God himself. Um, And so the glory of God that he sees there is is the glory of God himself. That's what's being referenced here and what is being compared uh, to the image of God when Christ is called the image of God. So the first thing to realize here is that uh, Christ, Jesus, as the image of God, is not just a reflection um, of God, but the embodiment of God himself. When you see him, you see God. That is part of what uh, what is underlying Paul's use of image of God here uh, when he calls Christ the image of God in 2 Corinthians. And so from this angle, um, And and, and this is why, then, Paul can speak of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, Looking into the face of Jesus Christ, one sees the glory of God himself. And so um, from this perspective, uh, in calling Christ the image of God, you could say that um, Paul is taking up one half of the reality of the incarnation, that God became man. Um, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God became man. And um, as a result of that, um, when we look at Christ, we are seeing the embodiment of God himself. And so that seems to be part of uh, what Paul means uh, here when he calls Christ the image of God. It's referring to that reality of the incarnation that Jesus is the embodiment of God himself. But when we get down to 2 Corinthians 4.6, there seems to be maybe another dimension of Jesus as the image of God as well. Um, When we get to 4.6, we see that Paul is also clearly thinking back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is in his mind as he writes this paragraph. Uh, We know that because he alludes directly to Genesis 1.3 when he says, for God who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," um, let light shine out of darkness. There is basically a paraphrase of uh, Genesis one three. So we know that Paul is actually also thinking back to creation and to that and to that creation chapter as he writes uh, these verses. Um, and um, and part of what he seems to be referring to here is also the fact that um, well he said. Uh, I'll just read verse 6 again. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he compares God uh, saying, let there be light, uh, when he creates light in Genesis. He compares that to um, God creating new light in our hearts, um, in effect, through Jesus Christ. Uh, He's comparing what Christ does in us to the work of creation itself in Genesis, in other words, uh, referring to God's new act of creation, His new creation in us through Christ, um, and so, but the fact here that Paul refers back to Genesis makes it very likely that he also uh, sees some analogy between Jesus as the image of God here. Um, and Adam as the image of God back in Genesis 1. Again, we know that Genesis 1 is on his mind here, so, uh, so it, it's uh, logical to think that uh, when he calls Jesus the image of God, he may also have Adam's creation in the image of God um, in his mind uh, here as well. And if so, this would be taking up the other half of the incarnation, that God became man, um, first half, uh, putting the emphasis on God, it's God who became man. Um, and uh, second half, uh, putting the emphasis on man, what did God become? He became man. Um, and so in a sense, to call Jesus the image of God here is almost taking up both halves um, uh, of the reality of the incarnation that um, that God became man, uh, emphasizing um, equally his divinity, the fact that he is the embodiment of God himself and his humanity um, in which he parallels uh, the creation of the first man, Adam. And and so when we look at Jesus Christ from this perspective, Jesus as the image of God, we can say this ultimately that Jesus um, is in one sense, on the one hand, Jesus is the image of God in the same way that we are. Um, He's God's representative. On the other hand, uh, Jesus is the image of God in a way that we are not. Um, He is the literal embodiment of God himself, um, who images him perfectly as a result. Um, We saw back in the first or second week of this class that one of the fundamental things that it means to be made in the image of God is that we reflect God, uh, within his creation. We were meant to be God's representatives, in a manner of speaking, uh, within creation. When we get to Jesus, we see that that is still true, except that he does it in a far more literal and more perfect way than, um, than human beings uh, ever could, um, other than him. And that is because he is actually the embodiment of God himself, not just a reflection, but the embodiment. Um, and so on the one hand, to be made in the image of God is, has the same function for Jesus Christ, that of representing God, as it does for Adam. On the other hand, he does it in a more perfect and more concrete way than Adam ever did. Um, and so uh, that's, that's the basics, I think, of what we learn about the image of God from Second Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. Um, as I go on here, let me say a word before I go on to Colossians one fifteen through 20. I want to say a little bit more about this idea of an uh, Adam Christology, or in other words, um, a sort of comparison and contrast between Adam and Jesus that we find in Paul's theology. Second um, Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, just sort of maybe vaguely hints in that direction, um, but when we look at some other passages in Paul, such as 1 Corinthians 1549, um, we, we can see that Paul really does think along these lines, comparing Jesus as the image of God to Adam as the image of God. So 1 Corinthians 1549, unfortunately that doesn't show up real well there, um, I'll have to remember that for future weeks. Um, but 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine reads, just, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, in other words, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, in other words, Jesus. So uh, within the larger paragraph there in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul is explicitly mentioning Adam, comparing Adam and Jesus um, repeatedly in different ways. And so the image of the man of dust, the man of dust here, uh, clearly refers to Adam, referring back to um, Adam's creation from the dust of the ground in Genesis 2.7, which is also recalled in Genesis 3.19. And and he compares Jesus to Adam as not the uh, man from dust, but the man of heaven, Um, and showing Jesus, um, on the one hand, uh, similarity to Adam, on the other hand, superiority to Adam. Um, And uh, so here's an example in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, where we really can see uh, more explicitly than in 2 Corinthians uh, that part of what it probably means for Paul to call Jesus the image of God um, does have this idea of comparing him back to Adam. um, uh, Because here he does it pretty obviously when using this image terminology. And and beyond that, even though this whole phrase "image of God," um, uh, beyond, beyond that, let me just say, um, beyond First Corinthians fifteen, the, this idea, this idea of a comparison between Adam and Jesus, is. Uh, is also found elsewhere in Paul's letters, uh, this idea of um, Jesus as a new Adam. And we see that especially one uh, great place to turn, probably the best place in Paul's letters to turn to see that idea is Romans five twelve through 21. And uh, I think I have part of that on the next slide, there it is, and um, I'll just, I won't read the entirety of Romans five twelve through 21, but if we just look at these couple verses in the middle of it, uh, Five, fourteen through 15, we read, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Um, so the idea is that here is that humanity uh, began in Adam and, uh, and also died through Adam, um, became sinful through Adam and died through Adam. And in Christ, um, it's as though creation begins anew. Um, new creation begins with Christ, uh, who is, in a sense, a new Adam um, and a more perfect Adam. Um, and just as we died through Adam, um, we live through Christ and are redeemed by grace through Christ. Um, and so that's the basic idea of um, Jesus and Adam and Jesus as a new Adam. And we find that idea throughout um, Paul's letters. I've given us just a few references there. They're more than that, really, but those are some of the clearest, uh, the ones that I wrote down there. And so uh, all of that, I mention all of that because that makes it all the more likely that when we see um, Paul referring back to Genesis 1 as he calls Jesus the image of God in 2 Corinthians, it makes it all the more likely that uh, he really is meaning on some level to compare Jesus to Adam. Um, And so, again, uh, emphasizing both Jesus as the embodiment of God and Jesus as human, um, both halves of the Incarnation. Um, okay, so then with that, we can turn to Colossians 15, uh, 115 through 20 and look at the second uh, major passage where we see Jesus called uh, the image of God in the New Testament. And uh, once again, as we do this, as we turn to that passage, um, well, let me read it for us first, and then we'll discuss it a little bit. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself and to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Um, okay, so when we go when we look at the first half of this passage, verses 15 through 17, we could sum this up as Jesus is the embodiment of God. Um, seeing that same idea there, uh, one of the ideas that we saw in Second Corinthians. Um, first of all, I mean, he just flat out calls Jesus the image of the invisible God. Um, and it, when we think about that phrasing, image of the invisible God, the idea there seems to be, uh, in other words, the one who makes God visible. Um, the one who makes the otherwise invisible God visible to us. In other words, he shows us uh, who God is. Very similar to uh, some of the ideas that we find in John's prologue, talking about the Incarnation. Uh, John 1:14 and 18. Um, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse eighteen, no one has ever seen God. In other words, God is invisible. Um, no one has ever seen God. The only God, um, uh, the only God who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Um, so again, the idea shows up there in John one uh, eighteen that Jesus makes God, who has otherwise um, never been seen, um, known to us. And uh, Paul seems to have that same logic. Uh, here when he says that Jesus is the, Im- the image of the invisible God. So he is the one who makes God visible, the one who makes him uh, known. Um, right after that, the next phrase, he, Paul calls him the firstborn of all creation. Uh, that phrase sometimes uh, causes a little bit of confusion because uh, we don't think of um, Jesus as uh, born or having a beginning, which indeed I don't think Paul does either. Um, uh, on a human level, Jesus is born, but the second person of the Trinity um, uh, existed eternally. Um, and, um, and, but the phrase here, firstborn of all creation, uh, probably refers back to uh, Proverbs eight twenty-two through 30, uh, which is a passage that may also influence John's prologue a little bit. Um, but uh, Proverbs eight twenty two through 30 speaks of God's wisdom as the first of his acts, um, the first of his acts through which everything else was created. Um, now, in Jewish thought, God's wisdom, the way that this works is that God's wisdom was analogous to his word. So think of John uh, 1, 1 through 3, um, where John is uh, very clearly in talking about um, about Jesus being the word through which God created uh, when he created everything in Genesis. Um, And uh, so in Genesis 1-3, God creates everything through his spoken word. It's an idea that shows up in, um, and that is reflected again in the Psalms later. Um, and uh, so, so in, in a sense, to call Jesus the firstborn of all creation, if it's referring to Jesus as God's wisdom from Proverbs, which is also analogous to His Word, um, is to uh, refer to Jesus as the means through which God created all things um, in the very beginning, uh, which actually puts him before creation, not means he's not a created being, um, but he actually precedes creation, which is exactly what Paul goes on to say in verse 17. Um, He is before all things. Um, And uh, also what he says in verse 16, uh, by him, all things were created. Um, and so when, and when we read that phrase, all things were created by him, again, we can compare this to John, John's prologue, uh, John 1, 3 through 4, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Um, and, when, and this language, this language of all things being created by him, um, and all things being Uh, held together by him, in other words, sustained by him. This is the language of divinity in Jewish thought. Um, These were things that could only be said about God himself, uh, that he created, and that he is the one who holds all things together. So in a number of ways here, from saying that Jesus is the one who makes the invisible God visible uh, to saying that he is the, uh, the very means, his word, his wisdom through which he uh, created everything else and that he precedes creation itself and that all things were created through him. In all of these different ways, um, Paul is pointing to the fact that Jesus is, again, not just a reflection of God, but the embodiment of God himself. Um, he is God. Um, but then when we go down to verse 18, once again we see this hint of an um, Adam Christology, the idea that Jesus is a new Adam. Uh, verse, uh, verse 18 again reads, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn uh, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now there's no mention of Adam there, but this idea of Jesus as the firstborn from Uh, the dead, Um, uh, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. In other words, he is the firstborn of a new creation. Um, So Paul ultimately uses this phrase firstborn in two different ways. Um, In the first instance, probably referring back to Jesus as God's wisdom in Proverbs. In the second instance, uh, referring to Jesus as the beginning of a new creation. By virtue of his resurrection from the dead, um, Jesus becomes the firstborn of a new creation, Um, and we all um, will be uh, his siblings following after him. Um, And uh, so, uh, so in that way, again, Jesus becomes analogous to Adam, who was the firstborn of the original creation. Um, Adam, firstborn of the original creation, Jesus, firstborn of the new creation, and by virtue of his resurrection. And um, again, this is really close to the kind of thinking that Paul shows in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where he's comparing Adam and Jesus. Um, And then finally, in verses 19 and 20, we could look at these last two verses as uniting these two concepts, Jesus as the embodiment of God and Jesus as the new Adam. Um, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, Very, very clearly there, we're seeing that idea again that Jesus is the embodiment of God. Um, The fullness of deity dwells in him, the fullness of God uh, dwells in him. Um, and then in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth uh, or in heaven, um, in, in Jesus as um, the new Adam, as, as human, as well as God, uh, we see uh, the reconciliation of, uh, of God and humanity. Um, and so, although he reconciles, his reconciling work, reconciling humanity to God, uh, ultimately takes place through the cross, there is a sense in which Jesus himself is already um, a walking reconciliation of God and humanity in his own person. Um, and uh, so, so, ultimately, we see the same kind of thinking about Um, Jesus as the image of God in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 that we saw in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. And we could sum that up as the theology of the Incarnation, um, referring simultaneously to the fact that Jesus represents God not just as a reflection, but as the embodiment of God Himself, and simultaneously to the fact that He is a new Adam. Um, And in that sense, he is what every human being was always meant to be, um, but he is the most true and perfect human being uh, that has ever been. Um, uh, the, in, calling Jesus the image of God for Paul seems to get at both of these ideas um, at once, which are ultimately summed up as the incarnation. Um, and so uh, I'll leave some time for, I should be able to leave a good chunk of time here for uh, questions and comments. But before I do, I just want to uh, say, uh, let's, let's compare what we ultimately know along these lines. Let's compare what we know about Jesus um, to what we know about the image of God from Genesis 1 through 2. If we think back to what we saw in the exegesis of Genesis 1 through 2 in about the second week of this class, we saw that um, there seem to be three primary things in Genesis one through two, that it means for human beings to be created in the image of God. Um, one, uh, we bear God's image as his children. We have kinship with God. Uh, two, we bear God's image as his royal representatives. That's one of the things that we were meant to do. One of the ideas uh, that's involved in our being made in the image of God in Genesis. And three, we bear God's image by representing representing his presence and likeness uh, on earth. So we bear God's images as children, we're as royal representatives, and we represent his presence and likeness on earth. That's what we were intended to do being made in the image of God. Let's compare Jesus to that. Jesus fulfills all three of these roles concretely and perfectly. Um, He is the son of God. Um, He is the royal Messiah, God's king over all creation and he's the very embodiment of God himself in whom God is fully present. So all three of those functions that we can see exegetically in Genesis itself, um, all three of those things that it means to be made in the image of God, to be his children, his royal representatives, um, uh, representing his presence uh, within creation, all three of those things Jesus does in a more literal, concrete, and perfect way than, um, than the original human beings ever could have. It's as, it's as though what was you know, it meant to be true on a metaphorical level of um, Adam and Eve it becomes true in the most literal um, and concrete sense possible in the person of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, Jesus ends up being truly and perfectly everything that human beings were intended to be as the image of God from the beginning. Um, And he does it as the embodiment of God himself. Um, So that is uh, in a very brief nutshell um, what I believe it means when the New Testament calls Jesus the image of God. And um, that sets us up nicely for where we'll go next week, which is how Jesus as the image of God redeems the image of God in us. Um, and i 've left about eleven minutes for questions, so um, questions comments yes uh, pete i 'll go to you first could you, uh, yeah. on, I guess uh, could you comment on your uh, second uh, corinthians three eighteen the use of image where it refers to us um, yes, so um, if I can, can I actually just delay that till next week? Because that's I'm going right there next week. Um, <laughs> so, I, um, I don't mind answering it, but I already have it planned for next week. Um, so I'll, I'll save that one. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the question uh, had to do with Paul's use of image um, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, um, uh, where it refers to us again. And so uh, that... And that and that's one of the texts that i want to cover next week so. i don't know if there's really an answer to this but i mean nowadays when we use the word image we think of something visual like when you do a google search and you p- click on the images you see a lot of pictures but you know jesus was there he was the everything you said but he would if he was in a room no you know you wouldn't look at him and say oh look He's different. He's, he's a perfect image different from him. Mm-hmm. So can you, is there anything to say about the fact that even though he was the perfect image, visually he was no different than anybody else? Sure. Uh, great, great point. Um, and I guess in some ways this kind of um, ties into what we've talked about in previous weeks a little bit. Um, what again? Fundamentally, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Does it mean that we that we visually or physically look like Him somehow, um, or is it referring more to um, character? Is it referring to um, our you know again going through the gamut of people uh, things people have said in the past, rationality, moral character, spirituality, um, all these different things and. Um so, in what way, yes, if, if Jesus shows us who God is in what way does he do that um, and it seems that um, as you as you pointed out, probably not visually, um, and there it doesn't seem to be it 's pretty obvious in the Gospels that um, people didn't simply look at Jesus and say um, that's the Son of God um, you know, and that didn't happen and in um, scripture in other places tells us that there was nothing particularly majestic about his appearance. Um, And so it must be rather that um, in the course of his whole life, he was showing us um, who God was. And probably, uh, I think, ultimately through, um, when we say through his whole life, through his example, he was showing us who God was. I think we have to take that all the way to the cross, um, and that it's in the cross, especially um, in his uh, in his sacrifice, uh, his love for us and um, self sacrifice out of love for us that he is showing us most of all um, who God is, um, but we have to take his life and example as a whole, um, uh, culminating in the cross um, to see and to see how he really reflects God and, and the image of God uh, yes uh Yeah, I was going to make this comment anyhow, but it sort of speaks directly to what Chris was asking. Um, In the Gospel of John, the disciples ask Jesus, they say, show us the Father. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm -hmm. But then he goes on to explain what he means by that. It has nothing to do with what he looks like. It's um, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The words that I use are the Father's words. The things that I do are the things that the Father is doing. Um, That's what it meant to Jesus to bear God's image, I believe. Yeah, a great point, and um, yes, go ahead. So just, I was reading the first instance in Genesis, and after they said, after God said, we'll make him in our image, they're given authority over Mm -hmm. the dominion, and so Jesus came with authority, and Mm -hmm. so that's an image that was visible over all creation, and IN CHRIST, WE HAVE AUTHORITY IN CHRIST OVER, I MEAN, THAT'S ANOTHER CONVERSATION, BUT WE DO CARRY IN THE the AUTHORITY OF CHRIST IN US AS HIS REPRESENTATIVES ON EARTH. AND SO THAT'S PART OF HIS IMAGE THAT I THINK YOU SEE REFLECTED BOTH IN JESUS AS WELL AS IN WHAT WAS GIVEN. WE LOST THAT. ADAM LOST THAT but THROUGH CHRIST. WE'VE REGAINED IT. RIGHT. Um, THANK YOU. YEAH, AGAIN, and I think that goes to the point that I was making at the end, which is that everything that it meant to be the image of God in Genesis 1, Jesus fulfills in a perfect way, including, including authority. Um, human beings were given dominion. Um, they uh, used it poorly. Um, Jesus, however, it comes as, as the king, um, as the Messiah, and as the ruler over all creation. And, uh, and next week, I'll get into the second half of that, how how the image of God in us is restored through him. Um, um, I've seen a couple, uh, let, me, let me go to Chris real quick, um, and then I'll come back to you. So hopefully this isn't theological gymnastics, and maybe you're going to cover it next week, but when it says that we're made in the image of God and Christ is the image of God does that imply that if the fall never had occurred if we had didn't have sin that we would have also been the image of God is that a logical extension and maybe that's what it means that in eternity after we're reconciled back that the, the penalty of sin is canceled that that's why we're also children of God that we're Actually, that distorted view is completely gone. Is that a right. logical... Um, there, Yeah, so there, there is a whole wealth of um, theological speculation about that question point, um, and particularly the question of what we would have become um, had we not sinned. Um, one, one, one place you can go for, for at least one possible um, imagining of an answer to that question is uh, C.S. Lewis's fictional work, Paralandra, where he um, uh, imagines two innocent creatures um, parallel to Adam and Eve on a different world in which the fall ultimately is prevented and does not take place. And so you see in the end, in C.S. Lewis's imagination, what that leads to um, and how they really do become a, uh, a king and queen on their world. Um, and of course, it's just a work of fiction. It's a work of imagination, but imagination is probably all we've got to answer this question. Um, and um, so, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, let me, just, let me just sum it up for right now by saying your guess is as good as mine. Um, but, uh, well, and I'll say one other thing. Uh, I'll actually just, I'll, I'll add one other thing. Um, one of the things that we see, even by virtue of the fact that we are made in the image of God in the first place, and that we are given authority to rule over God's creation by him, meant to represent his likeness and his presence in creation, is that um, in so many ways we are meant to be little versions of himself. Um, and yet we also see in Genesis 3 what happens when we try to be um, exactly like him instead. Um, and, and it's disastrous. And so there's this, um, this fine, but absolutely impermeable, um, hard-as-diamond line um, between um, humans and God um, in Genesis. And um, that line obviously does not exist for the second person of the Trinity. And so there is that fundamental difference, that barrier that can never be crossed. Um, but, but what would our glory have been um, without the fall? I think that there are a lot of reasons to suppose that we would have been, that we really would have looked like little versions of him. Um, and in the most glorious way possible, um, had that happened. So, um, okay, let me run over here real quick, and this will probably have to be our last question. Thank you very much. The question is, who is Jesus, and where is he? I, I believe the scriptures say that many in the last days They will say, there, Jesus is over there. He's over here. He's over there. So we have to be careful not to be deceived. Our Lord said, you know them by their fruits. Hmm. And even Jesus, I think he said, if I'm not mistaken, if you don't believe in me, believe in my works. So he came to do a good work, but we have to be careful, I believe, of deception. And uh, you know them by their fruits. So, whatever that means to the extent of it, that's what I understand. Mm. And, um, thank you, um, um, okay, I am going to, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and close this there. It's 1115. So, um. Uh, Next week, we'll talk about the second half of this, um, which is how Jesus has the image of God, redeems the image of God, restores the image of God in us. Um, So thank you all.